Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latofsky. And we've done it again. We've watched a whole bunch of movies, enough for two episodes, and I have forgotten nearly everything about all of them. No, I haven't. No. I remember most of them. <laughs> I'm getting older. So anyway, we we saved up a bunch of stuff for another two episodes. We just literally today, as we're recording this, we posted our special review episode of Scream and uh, our little encounter group episode. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings. So that's going out today. We then segued into watching a bunch of other stuff. I've been feeling the real pangs of continuing to want to revisit a lot of older things and also like watch some things I haven't seen that are older, but mm-hmm. hit that like sweet spot, particularly like early mid 70s, but this is 80s, but go back to some of these things. And another thing too that's occurred to me is, and I probably talked about it before in the show, is how much fun I had in the years, and it took years, Andy and I worked on Zombie Mania, where Andy actually lived with me during the time we were working on the book. And it was it was some amazing days where we would get up and like go get breakfast or have something at home and then get to work watching a movie. And I still see a lot of those movies in my mind's eye through the context of watching them like in an afternoon with Andy. And some of them I haven't seen since then, which is coming up on like around 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me how much time has gone by. Dead and Buried, which we just did in a recent episode, was one of those movies. I enjoyed it. I still had a lot of positive things to say about it when we talked about it, but I hadn't seen it in its entirety or really hardly at all since then. We're doing that again this time. Quite a few episodes back, you and I watched The Beyond, one of Lucio Fulci's classics, and the middle chapter in what is always referred to as his Gates of Hell trilogy. And so this time, we decided to basically wrap that up by watching the movies on either side and complete the Gates of Hell trilogy. Both of these movies, probably similar to the Beyond when we watched it, I have not seen at all since I saw them uh, with Andy for Zombie Mania. And I had never seen them at all. I mean, much like the Beyond I hadn't seen before we watched it. And I have a lot of questions about what exactly constitutes a trilogy in that (laughs) sense. Or Gates of Hell, really. But, you know. Well, Well, once you get to House by the Cemetery, everything kind of falls apart. The gates are more of just like a picket fence. (laughs) It's just a kind of a gates. It's (laughs) gates. It's a gates. So uh, we're in Fulci land for this entire episode where we're looking at City of the Living Dead, alternately sometimes referred to as the Gates of Hell from 1980, and the concluding chapter in the trilogy, The House by the Cemetery, which was done the same year as The Beyond in 1981, and all three of them starring one of Fulci's muses, Catriona McCall, or Catherine McCall, or Catherine McCall, or however they're spelling it this week. I'm sure we talked about it with Beyond. We didn't revisit our Beyond conversation, but I do remember, one of the things that always sticks with me is how a lot of interviews with her always kind of sound like the interview you have with someone who's been in an abusive relationship. She seemed to be most often very uh, complimentary toward him and you know, the man's a genius despite the fact that he tortured her and this is the movie by the way see the living dead is the movie that any Fulci fan knows has the sequence in which he yelled at her because he wanted to get that shot of her laying in the coffin with the pickaxe coming through right at her head 
and proceeded to demonstrate himself because he wanted he wanted it a certain way and it's like this is this is well it's like hitchcock right it's the same kind of thing we've talked about fulci and his his obsession with eyes before we went into it quite a bit in the beyond when we talked about that and boy does that go into hyperdrive in these two which is kind of fascinating to me either side either side of it and sort of like the beyond just sort of had your standard vulture run-of-the-mill eye gouging just like a nice slow motion eye gouging that i cannot watch and weirdly the two movies that sandwich on either side of it i would say that like a quarter of each movie at least minimum was spent just doing close-ups of people's eyes just while they looked at stuff and reacted to things like i want a super cut of both of these movies i want a super cut of city of the living dead and i want a super cut of house by the cemetery where it's just the eye close-ups and see how long that movie is you know well probably most of the running time and you know it also like occurred to me while we were watching it that it very much feels like a western the standard close cuts to the eyes of everybody involved in like a showdown gunslinging scene Mm. which I don't think I'm not as big uh, on every nuance of Western. I know a lot about a lot of different movies besides just horror movies, but I don't necessarily have in my head the minutia of certain genres as much as others. So I can't say I don't think that was invented with the spaghetti Western, but it's notable that it pops up in his movies. And Fulci, too, did Westerns like any Italian filmmaker. They did everything that was bankable. Mm-hmm. you know and and this was in that this, after that era but um it felt like that and it's like maybe there's a bit of that in there too this sort of spaghetti western approach to just get the eyes the close eye shots it's like good the bad and the uglies all eyes Quick just really likes eyeballs likes eyeballs it's really so, his thing so i mean yeah let's we'll start with city city of the living dead i was about to say city by the cemetery city of the living dead where right now <laughs> horrible things are happening At this very precise moment, in some other distant town, horrendously awful things are happening. Things that would shatter your imagination. I like I like the I I did want to remember to say this so I'm going to say it ahead of time. I think it's more relevant to the little girl in House by the Cemetery, but I do often feel it with the psychic in City of the Living Dead, one of many characters that just comes and goes whenever Fulci decides he's done with them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of looping because we're seeing all these dubbed. It's pretty much the only way to see these. Uh, I think still. I think so, yeah. um, it, I'd so much rather watch these the proper way with. But I mean, I say the proper way, but they were shot intended for an English speaking audience. So Mm -hmm. that was the way they were done. So the looping, though, is weird. And very often the rhythm and the sound of the characters clearly who were not the actors are not speaking English and the English speaking looping feels to me like the same feeling you get when you watch a dub like Japanese, like Godzilla movie or Gamera movie. It feels like they're speaking a little too fast because they're trying to get it in in the amount of time they have, you know, 
And a lot of the mystics lines, her lines were right now, something terrible is happening. I'll cut it in. It just, it doesn't sound right. And the little kid in House by the Cemetery keeps telling Bob, don't go in the house. I told you not to go into the house and you went into the house. It's like, okay, I get it. Stop talking. <laughs> it's also got a, a feel of, um, what's that episode? The Twilight Zone, or is it The Witching Pool? Oh, yeah. Where they had kids in that episode. And, and June 4 did June the voice. June it comes in and they have her dub over. Yeah. For And it just sounds so weird and wrong and like not good weird right like there could be a creepy aspect to a child who speaks like an adult but when you have an adult trying to sound like a child it creates a whole different experience for your ears it's very weird but anyway city of the living dead was the first one and it's interesting also filling in our various gaps we certainly are all the the two of us and all of you listening i'm sure very familiar with Zombie 2 mm-hmm. and its place in the history of zombie cinema and Fulci's contribution there. And City of the Living Dead is basically a direct result of the success of Zombie 2 and them saying, we want another one. Only he wanted to do something that was inspired by Lovecraft. He wanted to do something slightly different. And so unlike Zombie 2 in which a young woman teams up with an irascible New York newspaper reporter to investigate mysterious goings-on in a remote location. This movie features a young woman teaming up with an irascible New York newspaper reporter to investigate strange goings-on in a remote location. So Fulci really broke out of the mold. There's no boats. (laughs) So that's different. They're even both named Peter. He couldn't think of another name... (laughs) For the crazy reporter guy. I mean, all right. So McCullough's British. And this has a legendary star of uh, nothing anybody alive today probably remembers all that well. Christopher George. I remember Christopher George. I remember the days where he and his wife, Linda Day George, were like a given in 70s television and film where they would show up. And in fact, I think he was a star of a TV show called The Immortal, now that I think of it, where he's, it was one of the many Quinn Martin-style shows. They're after him because he can live forever. And it was Christopher George. Of course. But in this, he's just like, I, I remember enjoying him so much when Andy and I watched it because he's just one of those characters who, in the face of all evidence, not that any of this makes any sense. Another thing, too, is that both of these movies... Don't expect us to help you make sense of any linear plot. There is none. I never thought I'd say this, but the beyond now suddenly to me seems like a coherent film with a plot once you see the other two movies that bookend it. I really feel like once you see all three, you realize the beyond is sort of, it makes kind of sense in a way, like as a trilogy, he kind of gets everything together in the middle figures out what works but then there's like uh, and then i'm gonna make one more and that's like one step too far you don't need house by the cemetery although a lot of people love that we'll get to that yeah i mean basically now it kind of feels like the beyond is like a second try at doing city of the living dead kind of like in the evil dead realm where it's like we do the movie we're gonna do it again but like really get it right this time yeah and like that's kind of what it feels like to me now because this is, I can see the kernel of the idea in it, but boy, is it 
incoherent. Yeah. And of course, the beyond isn't that coherent either. It but it, it it feels like it in mm-hmm. comparison. So, okay, as we usually say, full spoilers. And in City of the Living Dead, Catriona McCall's woman who has a uh, horrific psychic experience that also dovetails with the apparent suicide of a priest in Dunwich, Massachusetts. As a result, the gates of hell have been opened, and now they have a certain number of days left to do something to close them. And that is about as much of a plot as this has, and none of it makes any sense, because like none of this gets any explanation or backstory. Who is the priest? Why did he kill himself? Was it deliberate? Like, is he serving Satan or something to open the gates? Did he know that's what would happen, or did he just do it? Why does he keep reappearing as a spirit? What? What? Why do we? Ha- has the powers that he has? Where he, like many of the other zombies throughout this, which aren't many, but there are a few because Fulci kept getting told, make sure you have zombies and everything mm-hmm. you do, can teleport and appear, just appear out of thin air. Why do they know that there's a countdown? What do they expect to do when they get there? None of this has any explanation. And throughout, Christopher George is the disbelieving guy who wants proof, who gets to say all the fun lines. Look, I'm not joking. I'm starved. Look, you're the one that got me out here in the armpit of the world chasing your galloping cadavers. And doesn't really believe anything that's going on. He doesn't even believe that All Saints Day is a thing, which is one of my favorite parts. Don't be upset. Upset? Who's upset? According to your theory, we have less than 48 hours before this uh, All Saints Day. You know, sir, that is actually That a one's day. real. That's real. In the bingo card of all the things they mention in this movie, that one's the actual thing. There is an element of them kind of getting a little team together, though, by the end. They kind of assemble everybody. A little bit. But also, I will say that even though he starts out as this sort of skeptic, hard-boiled, like, I just want like the real truth newspaper reporter. I feel like it's a short period of time into this movie where he's already shown things that should erase the skeptic, like the skepticism and get him on board with the mission. And instead he's just like, I saw that with my own eyes and I do not believe it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, um, sir, you're skeptical of your own experiences at this point. This movie also features the usual Fulci tactics. He does his Hitchcock cameo. Uh, In this, he's the medical examiner, I think. I think Um, so, yeah. uh, And then there's also all the stolen shots in New York. They grabbed a shot that looks like it's right on the steps of the police station with one of the standard Italian guys wearing a police uniform who in no way would ever be a New York cop, you know, hanging out and talking with Christopher George. And then they also do stuff that, of course... Even in American films, they could get stuff like this wrong. But in this particularly, like they mentioned Dunwich and they keep trying to like trade on the Lovecraftian connections and, and mention that Dunwich is on historic Salem. Like that's where historic Salem. Like they never stopped to check to see if Salem was still there. <laughs> and it's like, first of all, Salem is still there. But also, if you really want to be nitpicky, historic Salem was in a slightly different location. And that's where Danvers is. And having been there a couple times and really grown to love that area a lot, it's like this very close little area where literally within an hour or so 
of Salem, you've got Danvers and you've got Marblehead that goes to the coast. And it's like Danvers is kind of where the historic Salem stuff was. But it's still, there's still a Salem. And, and, and there is no Dunwich. There's no Dunwich anywhere. So that's ridiculous. But of course, you know, we're in a Fulci movie, so we're going to hold them to geography at this point. It occurs to me that that's also another beat that he hits from Zombie 2, because in that one, they're trying to find an island that's not on the maps. And in this one, they're trying to find a town that's not on the maps. There is definitely, when you really start to look at it, there's a cut and paste approach to this. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not saying that's necessarily a horrible thing. I mean, the fact of the matter is, for all the flaws that it has, and there are many, almost any Fulci movie, if you're in the right mood for it, can be fun, mm. kind of sort of more from a mystery science theater perspective. Yeah. But, I mean, there are people who are truly, like, devotees of Fulci's work in the sense that he is a true master of horror. I'm not one of those people. I appreciate Fulci's work in the sense that it's that this is all happening, it's craziness, and occasionally he also hits stuff that are that's visually or thematically interesting that I think is in spite of his level of ability. And and this one, Say the Living Dead, has a couple moments in it that rank right up there with like Wormine Zombie 2. We'll talk about them as like moments that horror fans tend to remember. And I think they're worth remembering. They're, they're cool, horrific uh, set pieces in this movie. One thing I think I will say, sort of in the pro column for Fulci, is that we've seen plenty of movies that were made in the 80s out of Italy and also Spain where they were just trying to sort of cash in on a trend or, you know, try to make it seem like they were making something that was attached to another project that it wasn't. I mean, and you could argue that too with with Fulci and Zombie 2, but really just in title not so much, you know, in the plot. And I do think, despite the fact that I'm not sure he ever really managed to pull a coherent story together, he had some interesting ideas in these movies. And it's certainly, there are certainly some interesting little vignettes, like kind of, kind of like what we've talked about in the past where a movie can be kind of surreal and not quite make any sense but occasionally you'll watch like a five minute stretch of it where you think you know that was that was a really good little vignette they set up there in the middle of this and i feel like that's what you get yeah with fulci where you'll suddenly have like five to ten minutes of really interesting storytelling and direction and cinematography and then it will be punctuated with the worst dialogue and like laughable effects and it'll also then transition into another scene that's terrible and doesn't make any sense a lot of, but you got that little section yeah and a lot of people refer to a lot of his stuff and specifically some of the movies in this trilogy especially the next one that we'll talk about house by the cemetery as like tone poems and like even he said about that one in particular, like I w- this wasn't trying for plot. This was like trying for like variations on themes. Like, well, well done, sir. <laughs> in that case, he you, nailed it. You avoided plot entirely. <laughs> but but yeah, and and so and again, I, it comes back to something I think we were talking about in last episode, in the scream episode, mm-hmm. which of course I talked about very negatively, and I stand by it. 
which is that I have issue with fans for whom uh, watching Carnage is their only reason for being and seem to genuinely revel in it in a way that we also take filmmakers to task for reveling in it. Mm -hmm. But there's an element of that that I feel there's a nuance to it. Like I can understand appreciating a gory set piece for the artistry of it if the if the thing itself does not itself revel in the cruelty or pain but almost does it in a cartoonish side of isn't this ridiculous and goofy kind of way like gives you the wink which in this case i feel it does there's an there's a mood to a lot of Italian horror that feels so incredibly straight-faced and serious that it's coming out the other side and saying, we know this is ridiculous. And this has one of those moments. Basically, anybody that knows this movie knows this is the movie with the sheep gut scene. There's the scene where the priest appears to this girl and she's in the car. And the, the general idea is like seeing him drives you so insane that she starts bleeding from her eyes and then starts vomiting up all of her internal organs. And as anybody that knows it probably already knows the story, but also in keeping with Fulci's wonderful relationship with actors, basically talked her into actually holding real washed guts in her mouth for a couple shots and spitting them out. And then they segue to a really terrible looking puppet for the rest of it, you know. <laughs> But the eye shots are pretty good, too, that are more subtle, where they they don't work as well on McCall later in the movie. But in The Girl in the Car, because the lights are low, they did the thing where they, they created these little appliances right under the eyes, like where you'd have bags under your eyes, to cover up little tiny tubes and then pump the blood up through them. It also meant they were shooting the blood water, whatever that crap was, right into her eyeballs. Mm -hmm. But it really looks good. It looks like she's bleeding, like crying blood and then there's the guts thing everybody remembers that shot it's an amazing shot it's a pretty cool horror moment this idea that something could drive you so insane that it like turns you inside out i always thought that was pretty good but like you say it's it's then immediately followed by a lot of you know yeah. acting and and writing that's not any good it's not interesting but that had a that's its moment Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a couple of them like that. I think the pickaxe scene where she's trapped in the coffin is kind of a cool moment in the sense that one of our, like, everybody kind of has that incredible fear of claustrophobia and, like, wouldn't it be terrible if you're trapped in something? And it's kind of a cool sequence where he's trying to get her out, but he's so incredibly stupid, he's going to, like, slam thing. <laughs> he knows there's somebody alive in there that he has to save, and yet he's using a pickaxe to slam into it where he can hit her in the head. Yeah, why not a crowbar to just wrench it open? Makes no sense. So, I mean, there's a lot that makes no sense. Because, like, try to stay with me here, dear listeners. If I were to just describe the plot to you, which is there's a seance that happens during which a psychic medium dies because somehow while embodying the spirit to watch a priest hang himself when he dies she dies and he opens the gates of hell and now she's dead and they bury her but then she's not dead and she comes back to life but she's not a zombie she's just herself but she's not dead anymore and then they gotta go on a road trip to find a town that she knows they have to go to to close the gates of hell by a certain time but doesn't know how to get there and when they get lost Rather than focus them, she complains that she's hungry and they got to go find food. <laughs> then they find the town, 
find the graveyard they need to find to find the priest's grave, meet two other people, and are like, we're looking for this priest's grave, let me tell you why. And then they leave the cemetery, go somewhere else, tell them the whole story of everything that happened, including probably whatever they ate while they were on the road. And then when it's almost the deadline and everything's gone crazy, the whole town is cracking open, everyone's getting killed by zombies Zombies and coming back to life. And that's the time where they're like, we should probably go find that grave that we could have found like 24 hours ago if we were just laser focused in what we were doing. And then they find it and they go inside and somehow stabbing the dead teleporting priest zombie in the stomach kind of clears the situation and they come back out and then like they're screaming because something's terrible but you don't know what the end little little boy john john runs up to them and they react as if although we don't see it he looks fine they react as if suddenly they're seeing something wrong and then kind of like a spider web effect is added over his face in like a freeze frame this is also first of all let me say i would like to have a blu-ray release of this movie where what you just said is the back cover copy of the <laughs> it's desk. one sentence no punctuation yeah it's just you know natalie says that's what the movie feels like one sentence no S- punctuation natalie says s-e-z colon and then it's just the whole thing mm-hmm. come on natalie what do you know uh the other thing is that the ending of this is one of those infamous horror genre stories that again some people might know but that the incomprehensibility of the ending, not that it isn't already consistent with the incomprehensibility of the entire film, is the way it is because we don't know and nobody will tell us. Basically, over the years, they asked everyone, from Fulci to the editor to everyone involved. No one ever told the same story twice, and versions of the story include footage of the ending was destroyed in the lab, Uh, He didn't get to shoot the ending he wanted. They re-edited the ending. Whatever story you believe, it resulted in what is obviously a cobbled together ending that doesn't include everything that was intended and therefore leaves you with nothing. And so again, spoiler alert, folks, if you are going to go into City of the Living Dead, not only do not expect coherence, but don't expect to have any satisfying conclusion to what passes for a story. There isn't one. Although, if you wanted to say there's a conclusion, the one thing you could probably walk away with is it clearly indicates that they didn't succeed. Like, it it looks like what's happening here is the end of the world, whatever is still happening, Mm -hmm. or else they wouldn't react that way. And actually, all three of these movies end with an uncertain or, or unsettling ending that suggests evil has not been vanquished, which kind of factors in in the same way that like carpenter's end of the world movies he always says that you know there's no stopping the end of the world in his movies Mm -hmm. in these they kind of feel like that i will mention one of the other things that's good Mm -hmm. is that this movie features the return of fabio fritzi in the music in the music uh, department who did zombie 2 and his music in this is wonderful as the music is in just about any Italian horror movie. It can always see you through when everything else sucks. It's quite good. And a lot of it sounds very much like he just rewrote melody lines from Goblin's Dawn of the Dead. But it's good. It's it's a good homage rather than just a straight ripoff. And borrowed a little from Zombie 2 as well and just yeah. tried to tone down the tropical feel to it not much though not much at and all. and like late in the movie there's a <laughs> sequence that is the zombie 2 theme just like a couple chords flipped but yeah it's just, yeah 
which, you know, it creates a good mood, so he knows what he's doing there. And we mentioned the zombies crop up, and not much. They're kind of wormy looking, but not nearly as effective as the ones in Zombie 2, because the makeup doesn't quite go that far. They have a tendency in this movie to reach into the back of your skull and pull your brain out, which is kind of a cool idea, if stupid, like many of these things are. Like, I guess, obviously, part of the magic that's happening is everybody's skull has been turned into styrofoam, so a zombie <laughs> can just reach in. I mean, I kind of like that he tried to create, like, a consistent pathology to it of, like, what it is they're going to do. And we see them eat flesh once. There's, like, one flesh-eating scene. Like, all right, fine. Like, almost at the yeah. end, where yeah. they, like, were looking at the dailies, and they were like, nobody's eating any flesh at all in this film. All right, they ate the flesh. Like, chew on them a little. So, I mean, they threw that in there. But yeah, it doesn't make sense really from any kind of, I mean, I say logical perspective. Obviously, there's no real logic involved. But like we say all the time, you have to kind of create the reality that exists in your film and then just stick to that reality. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it just isn't always the case because even the zombies don't really behave consistently some of them are very single-minded and that they're just gonna stalk and kill and stalk and kill and they all seem to be able to teleport as well as the priests they just keep like popping up places but then you get a scene so like where yeah kind of or i mean kind of like chinese zombies where it's very like hop hop kind of situation you then get a scene where one of our sort of from the town main characters who's an artist who actually is a pretty decent artist got some interesting art up in her house a lot of it very um focused on eyes Mm -hmm. you know go figure and she of course calls her psychiatrist's 24-hour emergency hotline to get him to come over to her house where he's like okay darling like i'll do this he's a real peach that one Mm -hmm. and he shows up and there's just like a dead body in the kitchen And it's kind of a neat moment where she's like, thank God you see it too. Like she thinks she's going crazy. And he's like, no, there's definitely a dead body on your kitchen floor. But then that body gets up, moves around, stalks them a little, leaves without injuring or attacking them. And it's the weirdest thing because it's like the only time in the movie where a zombie is like, "Mm, nah, (laughs) I got stuff to do or maybe somebody hit the call button or something and they had to go teleport somewhere else. It's a weird beat because there's no consistency to it. It just exists to like shake them up and also allow the psychiatrist to be like this weird like macho dude who was like, would you just like sit down and stop being a friggin woman for a second? Which, you know, he's really, got a real soft touch. Yeah, for, he endears yeah. himself to the viewer. Not at all. Is she the one that has the line? Men. Why do they have to make life so difficult? That's one of the lines <laughs> I wrote down. I don't know, but he definitely said, like, he throws out some crazy number about, like, you know, like, however many percent of women are have psychosis or something. <laughs> and the number is, like, 80% or something like that. I guess find the line and insert it here and consider me part of the psychosis crew, I guess. Tell me the truth. Do you consider me a basket case? No, not at all. Why? You're nurturing a pet neurosis, that's all. Like about 70% of the female population of this country. I will say the other thing, too, is that we get the, the parallel story of the idiots who gather at, like, the local 
not quite bar. What is it? Cafe, bar. Definitely a place that Taffer Bar Rescue would come to and say, this needs to be fixed. And it's a we're watching room. a lot of Bar Rescue right now, by the way. A lot. Uh, it's its um, own version of horror, really. It is. Uh, if you're afraid of bacteria. But, like, they see the walls split open and, like, hell reach out from the, you know, outside the bar. And then they're just like, well, let's have another drink. And they keep showing up anyway. Yeah, I mean, like, the first time the wall cracks open and, like, the mirror just spontaneously breaks. And they're like, I got some stuff I gotta do. So I'm just gonna hit the road or whatever. Bye. And they go running and the barner's like, oh, this stupid building this terrible quality walls just cracking open left and right and then like 20 minutes later everybody's in there drinking a beer again and they forget that there's like a hell gate opening just right there in the cinder wall and one of them is italian actor venantino venantini who i recognized as soon as he turned up but it took me a minute to place him who winds up having the weirdest subplot in the movie because it has no bearing whatsoever on the plot in the plot you know on the <laughs> there main are air quotes every time right. we say plot but he has it has no bearing on the main supposed story in any way whatsoever it is complete non sequitur events in which his character has a daughter who is with a guy that he doesn't want her to be with and in one sequence he finally confronts the guy and decides in the midst of the altercation with the kid that maybe what he should just do is push the kid down on his work table and drill him through the ear until he's dead, which he does, and is one of the main gore set pieces in the movie. And there's almost like a cheeky moment where it's almost like it's heading for his eye, and it's like, oh, it's a faulty film. You're going to drill his eyeball, aren't you? And then, nope, through his ear instead, and goes through his head, which is actually, again, pretty good effect. To their credit, the effect looks great. It looks great. I was, saying, I was saying also in both these movies, the blood looks pretty good in these movies, too. It feels like we're reaching a point. There's no, not so much like the red paint kind of mm-hmm. thing, the blood. But it means nothing. Like, it has no bearing on the plot. He doesn't do it because he's, like, we're, we get nothing like, oh, is this because he's compelled by the evil? That No, he's just a mad father who's decided for some reason that the only answer to a, a bad boyfriend is he will commit a murder. It's and just he, a random murder in the middle of a horror movie. And and then there's nothing else about that for the rest of the film. It's over as soon as he kills the kid. That's it. It's done. Now, the thing that two things are interesting about it. One is that Venantino Venantini had a son named Luca who was also getting into acting. And in fact, he's right here because he's the little boy John John in this movie is his son. So that's cute. He has his son on the set and he's got that part. The other thing is that having spent a good portion of the last few years steeping ourselves in all things Mystery Science Theater, is that Venantino Venantini is the main villain, uh, Palermo, in the Joe Don Baker movie Final Justice that we've seen lots and lots on Mystery Quality Science Theater. Film, that one. You son of a... Something! So, uh, so as soon as I saw him, I was like, hey, it's Palermo. Better not be <laughs> lying to me. So, so that was cool. But I mean, but it, it makes no sense. Also, apparently there are wild monkeys in in Massachusetts. That's one of the things Andy and I always thought was bizarre. The the soundscape in this is crazy. Like, do they think that Salem has wild monkeys? I think they were going for, like, howling, but it just (laughs) didn't translate on, like, the effects keyboard when they hit the button. At that point, it was too late. It's like, we're making the movie. They just did it in a linear fashion. And once you get past a point, you just run with it. Lady had a vision. That's uh, one of my favorite lines. (laughs) 
Christopher George, man. So, I mean, I don't know what else. I'm looking at my notes, actually. See, there's also the fact that, like, the kid, the little kid's parents are really his grandparents. There's no way those people are his parents. I don't know. There's also a reference to a book of Enoch that clearly was like Fulci riffing on the Necronomicon he wanted Mm -hmm. to do. But also, then again, we don't go back to it. Like, you'd figure that's going to be like the MacGuffin, right? They need to get the book and read something at the right time. They don't do anything. I mean, the psychic disappears after the first 10 minutes. The one who stays alive the whole time, not the one who dies and then comes back. But I guess she's a medium and not a say it's not really made clear really any of it we also appreciated one little thing was is this movie starts exactly the same as house on haunted hill it starts with a black screen and a screen Mm -hmm. so it starts exactly the same which all i'm wondering could that have been deliberate i mean i'm it's not brain surgery but it also seems like that's very specific but maybe it's just because we're so used to it it seems specific but I'd like to think that Fulci maybe intended that as like a little House on Haunted Hill thing. I don't know. I mean, basically, I'm not going to really assume that there was any intent in anything <laughs> that was being idea. done beyond sort of saying. Oh, beyond. Oh, beyond. I did that not even intentionally. The Beyond basically saying, like, let's give him a thrill ride. I want it to feel spooky. Hellgates, Lovecraftian, Salem. Get him to chew on a guy for a minute. We'll call it a zombie, you know, cut think, print. Let's go. I think that's it. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, really. Like, that works for a lot of people. And I will say that, first of all, it's very clear that I think we're both on the same page. That of these three films, we both agree that Beyond is the successful one of mm-hmm. the three in terms of all around being an entertaining watch. Yes. This one is second. Yeah. On that ranking. Mm-hmm. Probably a pretty low second in comparison, but with the third falling so much lower. For us, yeah. It's so, so it's like, it's not, this is not a coherent movie. And I don't know, maybe some people like the tone poem approach, but I, I like at least a little bit of a structure that makes me feel like there was a point to why you were telling me the story for an hour and a half. And there isn't really... And this also has a totally incoherent ending, which is infamous in its own right. But as a result, it's not very successful. And the only other thing I can think of is I still maybe somebody listening can explain this to me. Two of the three movies in the Gates of Hell trilogy are on the video nasties list. This one is not. And it's not like it came far later or far earlier. It's right there. It was the first one in 1980 why is this one not on the video nasties list i can't figure out how this escaped and my only theory to it from my own perspective and obviously i haven't done research into it maybe somebody has like a more informed perspective on somebody's it. gotta know but my only thought is that this film honestly surprisingly had absolutely no nudity and there was just like a little bit of heavy petting in a car but like beyond that it it didn't and while it did have gore none of it was exactly like earth shattering i guess in the same way that you'd see like yeah somebody's like puking their guts out and like yeah brains are getting squished out of the back of a head but it's not it's not like i don't know i guess maybe not in the realm that they would have considered gratuitous maybe it's certainly weird to me because the movie starts with a priest committing suicide and like the conservative you know you know 
Paragons of Virtue making that list didn't think that was a horrible thing. So Well, there were repercussions for that. Well, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a good thing. He was a bad priest. It opened up a hell gate. That's true. Kids, take note. Hell gate. Jumping ahead to the end of the trilogy is The House by the Cemetery. I wasn't looking forward to this. <laughs> Andy and I really didn't like this one at all from what I can remember. I found this one to be incredibly boring back then. It wasn't that much better. But I enjoy watching these with you. And it's like, you know, especially if you think to yourself, look, it's maybe the only time we ever have to watch this. <laughs> watch it the one time and see. It was interesting revisiting it because I really didn't remember a lot of it. I just remembered Freudstein, that there's the one zombie in the basement, that there's very little to tie it to the even even the notion of the gates of hell in any way. Really, there's nothing about that. I mean, so, okay, House by the Cemetery, the couple and the kid, one of the most insufferable little monsters in any of these movies, Bob. Ugh, Bob. Um is uh they move into the house and uh for kind of unclear reasons it's like he's gonna go to the town to finish some research that his colleague started but we don't know what kind of research all we know is his colleague moved there and immediately did a murder suicide with his mistress so he's like we're moving from new york to whitby was it near boston is that the idea uh yeah because again we're we're in that realm and again actually Fulci. where they filmed kind of is near boston yeah so they're right there and they uh yeah because you can tell a little bit about that when we get to about the house it's it's also this idea again of Fulci wants to play with like lovecraftian kind of elements so he's got that in his head and there's different composer working on the music but again the music's really good walter Rosati is now doing the music and they move into this house it's a beautiful looking house on the outside i love these houses with the turrets and the asymmetry and it's just fantastic uh, inside's not so good, but since those are sound stages, you don't have to worry so much in the real house about finding it a crypt, you know, like in the like first floor, like floor of the thing, which all these houses have tombs in the basement. <laughs> it's too cold. You can't dig into the soil, obviously. This ain't New York. So they move in and there's a little girl who's clearly a ghost of some sort who keeps telling Bob, don't go into the house, Bob. And Bob's like, I'll be right back as soon as I go in the house. So he's awesome. And then uh, and then we find out, like, the person who owned it was Freudstein. And again, some repeating elements. There's a thing about trying to find Freudstein's grave. Except at one point in the movie, they definitively discover that Freudstein's grave, with his name on it, is actually inside the damn house. It's just in the dining room. And like, then under the rug. he still goes to the cemetery and starts asking people, I'm looking for Freudstein's grave. You know, the one that isn't here because it's back in my house. And, and I don't understand why we waste time with that. But then, of course, the whole big revelation at the end, which, believe me, follows no logical progression whatsoever, mm -mm. is that Freudstein is some kind of weird, like, melted wax candle zombie who has kept himself alive by dismembering people and using their body parts in ways that aren't entirely clear. And his former, was it, wife and daughter are ghosts 
and uh and then in the end everybody's dead and bob joins the ghosts and they walk away together and it's like the others 1.0 kind of kind sort of. of it's it's a bad movie yeah. i think it's definitely the worst of the three it may be one of the worst italian horror movies i've ever seen of the ones i've seen it's dull it's it's incomprehensible to an extreme it doesn't even have anything really in it that ever feels like a set piece you can point to like oh that was interesting and the only thing it has going for it is a house that already existed because it's a real exterior. And I'm fascinated by the fact, and of course, again, it's subjective, right? There are people out there who can feel how they feel. There are people out there who this is their favorite because they like the fact that it's basically, uh, as, as I said before, a tone poem, kind of like a, it's just a ride of atmosphere and elements. I think it goes too far in that direction to be enjoyable. But other people disagree. I mean, basically, it's trying its best to do the gothic thing. Like, it's trying its best to be this sort of gothic horror, kind of quasi-Victorian feel thing. And the problem is, it's basically not even enough story for, like, a 25-minute Twilight Zone episode right like there's just too much going on where you as a viewer are like this doesn't make any sense like the house is weird and old and creepy they get there it's filthy the basement has like two by fours hammered over the door you or i would turn around and go we're not staying here. yeah and not only that it's not like they were buying a house or they inherited a family home they're just renting somewhere to live while he does research and they could like, go anywhere go to a motel and that's the other thing remember there's also the part where they specifically go back to the realtor by the way when the realtors another mystery science theater connection the real estate lady is one of the women that appears in Devilfish. i was so excited i never recognized actors and <laughs> she came in as the realtor and i was like is that the scientist wife lady in Devilfish?" and he's like you nailed it and i was like thank you she looks much better in this film she than does. she does in Devilfish. She looks better. i don't know what they were doing to her makeup there um but yeah so they go to the realtor office at one point and it's like we can't stay here another night make this happen and the guy's like yeah i know and then he like goes to a meeting with the woman's like i told you the freudstein place and then it never comes up again for the rest of the movie they're still in the house. She goes grocery shopping. Yeah, she she walking, by the way. <laughs> this walking distance to Woolworths. They never mention again, hey, remember the part we went to the real estate office and asked them to find us another place? Whatever happened with that? It's like it does, doesn't even come up. Yeah. So it's like it makes no sense. I will mention a couple other things just right off the bat. The Whippy thing is like a reference to Dracula, too. So this is like a lot of There's, I mean, it's attempts still, to yeah. do stuff here. Your gothic N- stuff. Nudity came back in, but only briefly right at the beginning. Like, yeah. it's like we need something right at the beginning. So suddenly we also, have Also, the realtor again. got like a couple of real weird, like, oh, she chest- gets stabby upshot video. She got very things. savagely attacked. Very busty yeah. attack zone. I just had to mention there was a uh, there was a scene at one point where he's got the cap on that has sixty six on it, and you said at that point add another six and we're in business. <laughs> Which yeah, I mean that makes sense. Yeah, and then also we couldn't figure out why did they have a photo of the house on the wall in New York? Like what is that about? Like why? 
And if that's like his mentor went to that house, why does he have a big photo of it so that the kid can see the ghost girl in the window? And Which also is kind of like the only cool thing to me in the whole movie happened in like the first 10 minutes, which is the kid. And kids are creepy anyway. I mean, I've said this many a time. Like kids, generally speaking, are creepy. And whether or not you're like a kid person or not, like even most like parents who love their children will say that they do creepy things mm-hmm. all the time. And the kids just sitting in the living room of their New York apartment. Again, that's an air quotes New York apartment. I don't really know where they filmed that. But he's just staring at a picture on the wall and you can see like a little girl in the front window of the house with like her hand out and like the mm. very international symbol for stop. <laughs> and like his mom comes in and he's like, I don't think we should go to the house because the girl says we shouldn't. And she's like, what girl? And he's like, the girl in the picture. And like the mother looks at it and the house doesn't have a girl mm-hmm. in the window. And you as the viewer have already been treated to the girl in the window. And so now... It's like very clear already to the viewer, like something weird's going on. But that's what made me think, oh, this was a home they had like inherited or something, like a family home. But no. And then in fact, they get there and she's like, oh, this looks a lot like the picture of the house we have hanging in our apartment. He's like, yeah, all the houses around here look the same. Like he mansplains like nobody's business with such confidence but he just decides he they all have tombs in the basement. It's cold here. The like confidence of the mediocre white man, right? <laughs> he yeah. just decides he knows the answers to things. And it's also unclear like what he's researching or why, only that it's gonna get him five thousand dollars more a year in his salary. Just a whole bunch of stuff I wanted to mention. Eyeballs are back with a vengeance. A lot of close eye shots. Boy are they. I don't remember enough about Beyond to know if we got it quite with that consistency, but since it was the middle chapter, I have to think that followed through, but I don't remember. I mean, the Beyond um, had an eye gouging well, an on, actual, yeah. on like a shower rod or something. Yeah. We also noted how the actors are sweating profusely through most of this movie. <laughs> the whole time. And it's like, this is one of those things that probably didn't turn up as easily in the days of VHS and prior to that, but when you see it now all cleaned up and nice... They are just drenched throughout the whole film. And it's like, I feel bad for them and am concerned for their health through most of the movie. And uh, then we also get the babysitter, who's all eyeballs and eyebrows, who is clearly evil until she's not. And that's one of the things about the movie that makes no sense, is that she's played so obviously as an evil... That's another thing we said... Her presence definitely gives it that, but this feels like it has elements of the omen and the shining. Yeah, very and much so. Like she just shows up and is like, the realtor sent me to be your babysitter. It is clearly, a, she's a plant. Although you find you out know. later, the realtor really did send her to be the babysitter. Yes, and the realtors are fine. And like, it's unclear why it is she's just so creepy. Like she like won't talk to to the wife like she just won't talk to her and instead of being like maybe we should find a new babysitter the wife is like boy it's so weird that she never talks to me and the husband's like i'll just give her some time like she'll get used to you and when she eventually gets killed it's like her death scene is the one scene in the whole movie where she no longer seems suspicious yeah like they decided all right we're dropping that now because we're not going anywhere with this character we need more bodies you also had a great quip but right around the time there's the bat attack and he spends like five minutes stabbing his own hand. You said father of the year this one. Because <laughs> he's just like 
screaming, got a bat on his head, he's shaking it around, he's spraying his own kid with blood at that point. <laughs> and it's like, come on, man. Oh, yeah. And Evil Dead is also a thing. So we get like the tapes of the dead professor. Fulci makes his appearance here as a professor who's like the colleague of the, the father uh, character who also like, you know, they just casually stand on the street and talk about, well, you know. Slaughtered his mistress. Ah, huh? well, you have a great time there. <laughs> That's, uh, That's gonna yeah. happen. And I remember another thing you pointed out is how the, the professor says on the tape, I've lost all critical perspective, which is usually when you stop your experiments into evil or whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> but now, in a way more so than the others, it just feels like a pile of parts, which feels kind of appropriate since the story such as it is, relies on this character disassembling people and creating a pile of body parts. This movie feels like a pile of disconnected parts. It also has that sort of Dracula feel and that callback where you've got the library assistant who's very much like a Renfield where he was assisting the other professor and now he's going to assist the new one. And he just shows up every time like somebody's in that room with the research. Like he goes in on a Sunday and he just pokes his head in the room like, what's going on in here? Yeah. And he's like, I'm researching. He's like, library's closed. He's like, why are you here? I'm cleaning yeah. the library. Also, you feel like, oh, so we're going to find out something about this guy. Nope. No, we don't. No, not no. at all. He's Never just, comes up again. He's just weird. He's just passionate about research. I also had some notes about, once again, except for the, the makeup design of Freudstein, the zombie himself, which is just kind of stupid looking. For those that remember, it reminds me a lot of the bat creatures in Beastmaster, the sort of like no mouth, kind of weird wax face. Mm. But the throat, there's a throat cutting scene that's very good effects. It's like there's some good effects in this again. There's also some bad effects. There are some bad effects too, (laughs) but there's some like, again, the blood looks good in this. It doesn't look fake. It's there's some decent effects. There's an axe scene where he uses the axe to try to get through the door and Bob's on the other side. That's kind of a replay of the pickaxe scene from City of the Living Dead. You noted several times, this This also goes back to a mystery science theater clip. I'm hearing like Mike saying, so it's like a pinter player. So it's like long stretches of nothing where people just stare at each other without mm-hmm. talking. And at one point, we're about 20 minutes from the end. And you said there have been murders and stuff, but no plot. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and and the kid screaming down saying, and mommy says you're not dead. Is that true? <laughs> it's like, are you expecting an answer to that kind the of question? The kid does not deserve to live at that point. No, and it's he doesn't. Like, so you have a like ghost girl trying to protect you who's like, all you got to do is not go in the house. I'll be right back. I'm going back in the house. And he even tells her, he's like, I'm just going to like put my foot inside and like fake it, make him think I'm in the house, but I'll totally come right back. He does not. He doesn't. He does not keep his word. Just goes in the house and is like, time to play racetrack. And he lays down at night and has to be carefully unfolded by his parents. It's always important, by the way, if you have a young kid like around that age to unfold them in bed. He actually like goes in because the kid's screaming in his sleep and having a nightmare and he pulls back the covers and then has the well, of course, face. And then just unfolds the kid's legs, tucks them back in. And was like, all right, little scamp, you'll be fine now. No more screaming when your legs are unfolded. <laughs> I don't know what else there is to say about this one. I, I didn't change my opinion. It's mm-hmm. a boring, pretty lousy movie with a couple moments or a couple pieces where you think, oh, this might be interesting. But unlike the others, it doesn't 
deliver on any of that. Yeah. And, and, and I will say that it at least doesn't have the totally incomprehensible ending of City of the Living Dead, although its ending is strange. It fits more with the beyond, with the idea of like crossing over into the other world, although the beyond is, I still think, is a chilling, fantastic final image. But this one is weird because they basically, it appears at the end that the parents are murdered by the Freudstein zombie, who evidently is going to get to continue to you know, go on with his reign of terror, collecting body parts for whatever thing he does that keeps him alive, which is never explained. And the the ghosts pull Bob away from him, but it seems like they pull him into their world. So does that mean that he was killed and we didn't see the physical murder or what? But then he just kind of walks off into the distance with him down the street. But where are they going? Because they're ghosts that live in that house. So why are they now walking down the street away from the house? That, if nothing else, at least kind of attempts to, like, put a capper on the yeah. end of it. Yeah. Um, I think it seems to me the intent is to say the kid was killed. He just didn't want to show child murder on film that was fascinating where faulty yeah like that's the line um and then pulling him out of the crypt they're really just kind of like popping a spirit out so he doesn't like you know i mean that's the experience the pain or whatever it is and he's gonna live with them now it did at least have an attempt at an ending it's just it wasn't it was not an enjoyable experience i think for either of us but the interesting thing to me, really, is that the exterior is a real structure and a real house. Yeah. And it's, um, I'm now blanking on the name of the town. So, yeah, it's the Ellis Estate in, I'm, I'm not sure if we're pronouncing it right, Scituate, S-C-I-T-U-A-T-E. I'm not sure. Correct us, people from Massachusetts. I mean, you know, the way things are with local pronunciation, somebody might come back and say, you know, that's city. And it's like, I don't know. I, yeah. So, but but it's a real house that still exists, and the website's devoted to the house. Like, the actual site says, you know, site of the, also featured in Lucio Fulci's house by this, and a couple others. I think Which is in, interesting to me. It's a different color now. They've painted the exterior of it a different color, mm-hmm. but it essentially exists on a big estate of land that's become public property. So it's got like, you know, miles and miles of hiking trails and parkland. And I think they use the building itself as like offices. Yeah. I mean, we don't see any of the interior in the film. But um, the exterior looks the same pretty much. And a lot of people go there. And what I think is very cool about it is that the city embraces it. Mm -hmm. There are so many places where they don't want to be associated with, especially horror films that were filmed somewhere and they try to just disassociate themselves from it. So I think it's nice that the town itself puts that right there on the page and tells you Here's how you can visit their hiking yeah. trails. Come see it. They even tell you like where there's a motel nearby and you can stay. And it looks like it's about it's about as far north along the coast from Boston as Salem is south from Boston. Here's the other thing, too. I love that area. And it's like I thought this movie was was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Would I also be excited to go to Ellis Estate and get a picture of the standing outside? Of course I would. Yeah. That's awesome. 
because it's because it doesn't matter that the movie is bad because other people think the movie is is great that's fine but also it's a chapter in horror history that i was also glad to revisit and it's part of falchi's career we all are fascinated with falchi whether we share the same opinion about the quality of his work the fact is we all enjoy experiencing it Mm -hmm. like you know we enjoy revisiting it or in your case seeing it for the first time in order to talk about it but it's a it's kind of like a rite of passage kind of thing like you gotta see Fulci stuff you're a horror fan it doesn't matter if it's any good or not it's part of it and i'd love to see that house in person it's an awesome looking place and it was perfect for this kind of thing it's a cool setting it's creepy it looks a little gothic-y as well and I think there's something very neat about being able to kind of step onto a film set, mm-hmm. you know, many, many years after it happened and still have it kind of look the same. Yeah. It's like there are a lot of places where they'll have like a placard that says, oh, they filmed the thing here once, but the building doesn't exist anymore. We recently watched a couple of them. And like uh, if you get a lot of the Scream Factory stuff like we do, you often mm-hmm. see... Sean Clark uh, does his uh, little tours where he takes you on like tours around town where everything was shot, especially like a lot of Carpenter movies. Right. And and that, too, is interesting. Like what's changed? What looks exactly the same as it did 30, 40 years ago? And sometimes it's amazing how things I mean, like the church in the fog, for instance, is still the church in the fog that didn't mm-hmm. change all that much. I'd love to see that. Boyce is knowledge extensive. I mean, he really yeah. researches so much about what he's going to talk about which i appreciate yeah he looks like he looks like a headbanger heavy metal kind of dude which he probably is too but it's also clear that he's also a very very studious geeky guy who loves the subject matter of where was this shot and to the extent of i'm standing at the angle and in the spot where the actual scene is so that Mm -hmm. you can you know that's he does that sometimes you even see he's actually i think he's like carrying like a gps locator so he knows yeah. exactly where it's like that takes knowledge and research to do that so yeah so yeah revisiting these things is cool and the fact that that house still stands and still looks pretty much the same like you'd recognize it even though the color is different is is neat and i would like to see that and even though it didn't work for us really as a film this is one of those where I can totally understand why it works for some people. This one got on the video nasty list, by the way, too. I can see that. Which, again, I guess, well, I mean, the thing is, there isn't as much in this. There's way more blood. There's more blood. Yeah, I guess that's true. And I mean, and and also there's the implication of what it is, like the body parts and everything. There's yeah. an implication of more carnage. Mm-hmm. But it's still weird to me that two out of the three, all three of those should be on the video nasty list. I mean, it's all arbitrary. I like how I'm saying they should be. Put those (laughs) damn movies on the video nasty list. So, yeah, I mean, I can see how some people would enjoy it. Like, I can see... There are some films we watch where I'm like, I don't really understand how anyone could possibly like this. This is not one of them. Did it work for us? No. I would also say if I ever was asked, if anyone was asking me, I would say if you're going to watch Fulci stuff, you should watch all three of these. Yeah. I mean, make your up your own mind. Watch them all because they're all like variations on a theme and you should see all of it and see what you think. Yeah. And see if it works for you, which is totally valid. I mean, just because it's not something I think we're going to want to revisit doesn't mean that it's not worth watching. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Litoski and Arnold T. Blumberg. 
You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLitovsky, that's NBLitofSky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were City of the Living Dead, 1980, and The House by the Cemetery, 1981. It's just something you'll have to get used to. Say New York. I know. Ghouls in the House is an ATV Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. Go ahead on.